0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Hey, today we are going to be talking about some more October Halloween related stuff. But before we get into it, I want to remind you that at the end of the month, we are going to be using Periscope to uh, respond to our listener mail. So Joe, Robert, and I will be together in front of, I'm assuming, an iPhone or something uh, and broadcasting live, uh, reading your listener mail. So if you want to participate in that uh, or you just want to watch it and you uh, I believe you can interact with us in real time on there. Uh, follow us on Twitter and then also uh, you know keep an eye out on our other social media channels for announcements about this upcoming Periscope thing.
0: And also check us out last two weeks of October. We're going to have Monster Science back up. Uh, so that's going to be some VHS-laden, daytime horror-themed uh, explorations of the real science behind some notable uh, film monsters. So be sure to check uh, check in on that. You can find up. We'll have links for that all over StuffToBlowYourMind.com, as
1: well as uh, our Facebook page and uh, How Stuff Works, and Twitter and Tumblr as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those uh, social media channels were Blow the Mind. And if you want to get in on the listener mail action, remember that you can always email us at blowthemind at HowStuffWorks.com. dot com.
0: But today we're talking about Creepy Pasta, which. Uh, I imagine there are three different responses out there. Some people were probably going, "Ooh, creepy pasta! I love creepy pasta." Other people were going, uh, "Creepy pasta! What are you doing, covering that?" And other people were just flat up asking, "What the heck yeah. is creepy? Is creepy pasta al
1: dente? Like, yeah.
0: <laughs> is it? Yeah, is it the texture, or the, is it pasta that's shaped like little ghosts? Like that's what yeah. entered my mind when I first started hearing about it uh, a few years back." But uh what uh, let's explain what creepy pasta
1: is for everyone who's not familiar. Right. Okay. So I'm only recently familiar with this uh phenomenon. But apparently around 2006 uh, a a sort of Fad, I guess, meme started up, uh, on the internet called copypasta. And I think it originated on 4chan and then splintered off into several different genres in different areas. The, the basic idea though is that you're creating, uh, content that's like copy and pasted into an email or maybe on a blog or something like that, right? It's something that's like easily accessible and shareable.
0: Yeah. And it's, I think the two most ubiquitous examples of this, first of all, emails from your grandma or your uncle yeah, where like it's some, chain letters. yeah some sort of yeah. ridiculous story about you know somebody's putting disease needles into convenience uh, store machines you know or <laughs> or oh watch out for hoodlums throwing eggs at your car or people turning their lights on and off you know there's always some yeah. sort of like oh it's gang activity or or some sort of weird horror going on in your daily life where you could Possibly believe it, but if you actually research it, you'll see, oh, this is just a, 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 the same couple of paragraphs have been copy and pasted throughout the history of the internet,
1: and we just keep falling for it again and again. Creepypasta is sort of the horror iteration of copypasta in that it pretends to be like an urban legend or like a a pseudo real-life event that happened, but it's told as a horror story.
0: Yeah, and I think some of the – you can definitely see some creepypasta – in the uh, copy pasta uh, that you you see yeah. in some of those emails, you know, where it's ultimately you're talking about some sort of folkloric, modern folkloric horror theme uh, that's wrapped in enough
1: reality or pseudo-reality that you buy into it. Yeah, they all sort of play off of these authentic aesthetics using, like, they mimic things uh, like documents of real life. It's almost like the found footage of prose, like Mm -hmm. uh, there's diary entries, witness statements, sometimes there's image and video files, and as we're going to talk about today, many of them take the shape of scientific reports or like lab analysis. Yeah. Uh, And so what we thought we would do today is look at some of the most popular scientific based creepy pastas and then look at the 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 plausibility and the real life connections of the the science that they posit yeah and i want to you definitely imagine some
0: big uh, quotation marks around scientifically based there oh yeah oh yeah
1: (laughs) as we'll get into yeah yeah i mean there's some <laughs> there's some very loose stuff when they just say a stimulating gas was presented right yeah. there's no they don't name the gas they don't give any methodology or anything but some of them are better than others yeah. we'll we'll get into that as well
0: it's um one thing to keep in mind with coffee pasta, too, and especially creepy pasta are the different ways that you come across it online like right. there are definite creepy pasta destinations for people who love reading it and creating it, and they 're just kind of wikis for this and we 'll have some yeah. links to these stories on the landing page for this episode stuff to blow your mind com so you can explore that on your own, but you 'll also see stuff showing up on social media or you 're doing like we encountered this plenty of times you 're doing some research you 're trying to find out about certain actual experiments, and then you run across some creepy pasta. Yeah. And for a split second, you're like, what is this experiment they're talking about? Oh, yeah. it's creepypasta.
1: Yeah, it is kind of perfect, and especially researching this particular episode was difficult, because mm-hmm. when you're trying to research the actual scientific uh, basis for some of these stories, you end up finding either fake articles or or the actual story itself yeah. popping up in a lot of your searches. I've also seen, uh, like, wiki questions and message
0: boards. So oh, you yeah. see this kind of stuff popping up there, where someone will have like a legit, quora. yeah, people have a legitimate question, and somebody will decide to throw a slip a little pop in there. <laughs> <Right. you know? laughs> like I've I've seen medical uh, question sites um, where someone will be talking. I think I was writing something that had to do with uh, about about prostates, uh-huh. and prostate exams, and I, I ran across this message board where somebody was asking, hey, what can I expect when I go in there? And then somebody had this ridiculous story that they shared. (laughs) And then another individual responded and said, oh, this is pasta. Here's an example of where it was previously uh, rolled out. I think that's where I first discovered oh, yeah. the, the term copy class.
1: Yeah. I mean, like in today's age of like, uh, w- what we are often told is, uh, in, in our daily jobs is user generated content, right? Where like the user is commenting or, or creating something on their own. This is the perfect kind of thing to slip in there, right? Yeah. Like in an Amazon review, you could drop in some creepy pasta related to whatever item it is. That's uh that's on sale and, in. You give it a five-star review, but let people know that it was haunted or something when you got it in the mail.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like the creepy mold that grows uh, on on the the structures Mm -hmm. of the Internet and throughout the systems (laughs) of the Internet. And some of it is just merely mold. (laughs) Sometimes. But sometimes it's exquisite, and it's fun to look at and feel.
1: But I think so... um People who maybe aren't familiar with the creepypasta genre, you might actually know, uh, the the most famous of the creepypasta characters or stories is the Slender Man one. Uh, and I don't know a ton about Slender Man other than what I've read. About him outside of the creepypastas he appears in, but basically the idea is that he's kind of like a—he's a horror story uh, character, right? He's just as much as like Jason Voorhees or, F- or Freddy Krueger, but he's kind of like an uh, uh, elongated, skinny, scary-looking man in like a suit.
0: Yeah, you see, the, the, like the the reason one of the reasons Slender Man is such a, a nice example of copy pasta is that he's. Kind of collectively assembled. He's an amalgam of pop culture influences, and and ultimately the the final form is very amorphous too, because yeah. some. Because a lot of it's about his depictions in individual pieces of creepypasta, or especially in imagery and these various Photoshop contests
1: that have contributed uh, to uh, to the mythos. Right. Yeah, that's one of the ones where there's a lot of visual uh, accompaniment. Yeah. Right? Like a lot of a lot of Slenderman revolves around the the pictures that people have created that are just terrifying.
0: Yeah, and there's no real consensus on like exactly what the story is. Like nobody yeah. said this is what Slender Man is. Right. The or rules is of Man. Yeah, and that helps to make it mysterious and. and and, and weird. I mean, that's one of the reasons that uh, Lovecraft's uh, mythos continues to resonate is that there's uh, yeah. individuals have come along and tried to create a boilerplate, uh, uh, you know, mythos
1: for him. But ultimately, his mythos is shrouded in mystery and contradictions. Absolutely. And so, uh, included in that and. I'd be remiss if we or we'd be remiss if we didn't include this is that you may have also heard in the news that there was an inspired violent assault by two 12 year old girls against another 12 year old girl. They were trying to murder her in inspiration, they were inspired by Slenderman. Mm-hmm. Uh and um, you know, to clarify, like the owners of creepypasta.com, many of the people who were involved in this community, they all, you know, released a state statements basically saying like they this was not their intention. They didn't want to be connected to this at all. It was more just a kind of a fun pop culture thing for them to have a community around. Right. But these girls somehow took it internally and uh and ended up almost killing their friend luckily she escaped and was uh i think she was stabbed like 17 or 19 times or something like that she was found by somebody on the side of the road and was able to get medical care
0: well i mean it just speaks to the 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 power of storytelling the, the power of folklore and the power the power of symbols you know i mean anybody can create a story and oftentimes the story's not going to be that good but yeah. you're playing with powerful elements when you start playing with with established tropes and established symbols established symbols of fear and uh even uh, you know a, a very amateur creator can, can end up creating something that strongly resonates and i mean that's the, yeah. the beauty of uh, of something like creepy pasta
1: yeah it is and and i also like i think that it would be uh, really like off the mark to say that like oh it's because of slenderman that this happened you know mm-hmm. i mean clearly like there was something going on with these girls anyways uh, that's like the argument that like Ozzy Osbourne influenced teenagers to kill each other in the 80s or something, you know, yeah. I just, I don't buy into it, but I think it's important that we let the audience know about that. Creepy um, Creepypasta really kind of hit its height in 2010 because the New York Times actually uh covered it and did an article on it. Um, but, you know, a lot of it resembles what um, we, we refer to as weird fiction, right? Yeah. You see, I mean, it kind of runs the gamut because... On, on one
0: end of the spectrum, you have creepy pasta that reads like a – either either like a Wikipedia article or a, per, or a poorly written Wikipedia article. Yeah. Where it's just very factual, very grounded in this objective reporting style. And then on the other hand, stuff that is aspiring more and more to resemble weird fiction, you know, something with more of a
1: narrative flow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as a – both a fan of horror prose and somebody who writes horror prose – I guess my personal literary criticism here is just that the best of these always ends up still reading kind of like a Wikipedia entry, right? So there's no, there's no craft to the prose necessarily that you would find in something that's designed for literature. It's mostly just a summary of the plot. However, it can be done artfully, um, so in such a way to make it seem like it was a real thing, right? Uh, If it's done as such, then it can have a a, a pretty sustaining dread that goes along with it. Um, So there are some of these that I like better than others, uh, like any kind of you know uh, uh, medium or storytelling. But uh, I have to say, <laughs> and I want to warn our listeners, if you, if you haven't read any of these yet, a lot of the grammar and spelling is, is just horrible in these. Like, they need a proofreader to just go over each yeah. of these. Although I guess that that could potentially be part of the, the charm, right? Is that, like, it's been written by somebody who hasn't taken the time to proofread and go back and fix errors and therefore it seems more authentic. Sometimes when you've been horrified by your
0: participation in a frightening paranormal experiment, you know mm-hmm. you, you're less uh,
1: less attentive to grammar. That's that, that's possible for sure. Uh, I, I do want to say one more thing. I want to throw a plug out there for our colleagues. So, a lot of people don't know this, but, uh, our How Stuff Works colleagues, including our producer Noel, who's on the board right now, uh, Lauren Vogelbaum from Forward Thinking, and, uh, Ben Bolin and Matt Frederick from Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, all got together and put together what I would call a creepypasta audio play. Uh, it's called see you next time and they did it for the atlanta fringe festival and it's about like a 30 minute mp3 that you can go and download from their site so if if you're into that kind of thing like if you're like a welcome to nightvale kind of person uh go download that and check it out because it's all how stuff works characters and personalities in fact joe and i both make very minor appearances in the story just as like kind of extras but uh really well done and it was like one of my favorite horror stories from this past year
0: Oh, cool! Yeah, we'll include a link to that on the landing page for this episode. Um, in terms of back to, to creepypasta, though, yeah. the creepy pasta, though, like I find that the the ones that are instantly uh, grounded in in more of a traditional storytelling, like you know, where the the, the narrator is saying what I have to relate to you about this experiment is terrifying. Yeah. Fine. You, you instantly know you're reading a story, right? But I guess the the and then to your point, if it reads entirely like a Wikipedia piece, then it's it runs the risk of just being completely dry. Right. Um, it can still be engaging, but I, I think the probably the sweet spot is if you can have it start dry and seemingly factual mm-hmm. and objective, and then have it morph into something uh, that that uh, that is more uh, elegantly uh, written, and, yeah. and maybe steer back out of it
1: yeah it builds yeah yeah i think another thing that that is key with these as well is is the format so like the mimicking of a of a particular kind of format to uh, to create the authenticity type thing like like ones that mimic actual wikipedia entries are kind of using that format to their advantage right? right whereas like if it's just a chain of prose that shows up in my email sent to me by my weird aunt then i'm less likely to go oh this could potentially be a thing. yeah. Uh, And and another thing, too, that's probably worth noting is that like part of our job for the podcast and other things is to evaluate sources (laughs) and evaluate validity of things. And so inherently, I think for for people like us reading these things, we're automatically like, wait a minute, I need some more evidence. I need more information. Where are the sources cited?
0: Yeah, one of the early examples of just just, um, recording folklore uh, that I think has some some potential ties into Creepypasta is um, a book called uh, Strange Stories from a Chinese Studio yeah. by uh, Lao Zi Zi from uh, 18th century China. Uh, each of these tales that... Uh, that the author relates they all they all start the same and they all kind of end the same where he's saying i knew this particular individual and and he works over in this province and works in this office and he told me this story about this encounter he had and then the encounter might be seeing a strange like pin dragon or seeing or encountering a horrifying ghost or having right. some sort of mildly body hilarious encounter and then it will end again with him firmly tucking it back into reality by saying, and this particular acquaintance of mine, uh, he uh, continued to have a great career in this province, and I still hear from him from time to time.
1: You yeah, know. the the idea I think there or maybe is conscious or not was sort of taking the oral tradition of folklore and translating it into prose. Somehow. Yeah, I think you see that with a lot of early weird fiction as well, like Arthur Macon. Uh, you mentioned Lovecraft earlier, uh, to an extent like Algernon Blackwood, mm-hmm. things like that.
0: Yeah, you have to sort of you have this nugget of uh, of the fantastic and you need to to tuck it in firmly into the bed of uh, of our uh, our informational system really and in this case it's uh, the internet. Yeah,
1: absolutely. They're using the medium to its advantage. So, okay, so we're going to talk about three particular creepy pasta science experiments and we'll 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 give you the premise we'll lay it down for you uh it's going to be a very shorthand version of it and then you know if you want to go read them on the on your own uh, and then we will take a look at the science behind these yeah
0: all right well let's kick it off with probably the the more famous of the three the one the one that seems to to hit up there at the top of the list uh on most of these creepypasta sites the russian sleep
1: experiment Right. So, okay, the premise of this, I'm going to try to go through this pretty quickly. The premise of this story is that in the late 1940s, there was a Russian researcher, or it was a research team, I believe, who kept five people awake for 15 days using what's only referred to as an experimental gas-based stimulant. So we have no idea whatever this chemical was. Okay. Uh, the research team kept them in a sealed environment. And monitored their oxygen intake. I don't know how. It's never explained in the story. Uh, but basically because this gas was potentially, I, I think it was toxic in high concentrations. Okay. As the story goes. Uh, because they didn't have video equipment at the time, they watched these uh, participants through portholes, and they listened listened in with microphones. But basically, the chamber they're in was stocked up with you know the things that they would need uh, like books and cots, running water, a toilet. They had enough dried food in there for a month, uh, and they were all political prisoners that were deemed enemy of the state, enemies of the state during World War II. But they were falsely told before they went in, hey, if you do this experiment and you can manage to sleep, uh, not sleep for 30 days straight, then we will uh, free you and we'll forgive your actions. Uh, so the story goes like this. First five days, these people are fine. Uh, after about day four, though, their conversations start to get a little dark. They start getting paranoid of one another. By day nine, one of them starts screaming and running up and down the length of the chamber. And he screams so loud that he physically tears the vocal cords, his vocal cords. The others begin to just start whispering into the microphones, uh, not even acknowledging that the, the other guy is screaming. Then a second one starts screaming and running around. These two, uh, take the books that are in the room, rip their pages out, cover them with their own feces and paste them up over the porthole windows. Uh, so the studio we're in right now actually has a porthole window. Yeah, so. I was actually just thinking this is a, this is like what happens when you try to record four podcast episodes in a single uh-huh. day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I begin the screaming and running around. Uh, <laughs> day twelve, all the sounds stop, uh, and the oxygen consumption rate rises to what is uh, you know understood as heavy exercise levels for the five people. Okay. On day 14, they use the intercom and they try to, you know, contact them and figure out what's going on inside this room. They get one response, which is, we no longer want to be freed. On day 15, they're finally like, alright, we're going in there. They open up this chamber and they send soldiers in. They find that one of the guys is dead. The rest of them are all crazy. They've uh, eaten themselves, ripped their own skin off, removed some of their own organs from their bodies. Uh, very, like, uh, gory body horror type stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really wanted to go to stay in the chamber, like they were addicted to this gas. Uh, one of them, the minute they take him out of the chamber, he bleeds to death immediately. Uh, and they find when they're trying to resuscitate him that uh, he's uh, utterly resistant to morphine. Uh, one assaults and kills one of the soldier. I think there's, like, another thing about, like, another one, like, biting a soldier's leg and taking a chunk out of it. And then, like, some more padding that's, like, all of the soldiers committed suicide within five days or something like that. Uh, and then... (laughs) This part didn't make sense to me, even in the, like, narrative of the story. But they uh, they sewed the skin back on to one of these victims. Oh, yeah, like uh, you do, yeah. Yeah, uh, to try to save him, I guess. Uh, and they tried it with one of the others, the other survivors, but they just kept laughing so much during the surgery process that they couldn't pull it off. So... Uh, it ends up with them being put back in the chamber because there's some higher up who says, you know, we got to figure out what's going on. So they put these guys back in the chamber. Uh, they turn up the gas. Their brainwaves start fluctuating between normal and then flatlining as if they're dead. They try putting three of the researchers in there with them, but one of the researchers grabs a gun and shoots his commander and then shoots the captives. Right before he kills the last captive, the captive says this. We are you. We are the madness that lurks within you all, begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from in your beds every night. We are what you sedate into silence and paralysis when you go to the nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. Okay. And that's the end of the creepypasta.
0: All right. Like most of these experiments, it ends in madness and death and, Ye- uh, and some inkling of uh, the world beyond the veil right
1: yeah I think you're gonna find that like there's a common theme of science experiment people go crazy kill everybody and then say something eerie yeah like we're saying if you if you were to find the published peer-reviewed studies for each of these you <laughs> yeah. would be able
0: to skip down to the conclusions and they would say, and everybody went mad and we had to put down the uh, the
1: inmates. right right yeah what, I'd love to see the IRB for these the institutional review board like yeah. like looking at this like wait you're gonna do what now?
0: (laughs) All right. So what's the... Basically, at heart here, though, we're dealing with the science of sleep deprivation. Yeah. There have been a number of studies that have looked at this. So what happens when you stay awake for extended periods of time? How can we make ourselves
1: stay awake for extended periods of time and, and still function properly? Right. So what we know about sleep deprivation, and I'm sure many of you out there have experienced some form or another of this, right? Like, last night, I got one hour less than my normal, however many, eight <laughs> hours a night that I get. And I'm a little, uh, a little Logie, I think is the term <laughs> this morning. Uh, but the basic breakdown of it goes like this. Uh, we know that we are alertness lowers, right? Uh, we have trouble concentrating, If you even lose 90 minutes of sleep in one night compared to your average sleep schedule, you'll be 32% less alert the next day. So I'm somewhere in that 32% range today. Um, 41% of U.S. drivers, this is a scary part, scarier, I think, than the creepypasta, uh, 41% of U.S. drivers admit to falling asleep behind the wheel because of this lack of alertness. It also totally screws up our circadian rhythm. Uh, so our body can't keep the correct time when we haven't slept the right way. It's as if you're jet lagged, uh, which makes sense. Uh, and we actually, on our sister show, uh, Brain Stuff, have done both episodes on what happens when you don't sleep and what happens with jet lag. And there's some really interesting stuff about jet lag in relation to uh, light entering our eyes and how it interacts with our brains. So if you want to dive in more, there's stuff there, but, uh, because the circadian rhythm is impaired, our motor skills are also impaired and our hormones start to rise and fall in these just very inappropriate ways. We also lose memory. That's a common symptom of this. So uh, what we know is that when we sleep, it consolidates our memories, basically takes the things that happen to us, and it organizes it in such a way that helps our cognitive function. Yeah, it's kind of like a defragging of the
0: human Absolutely. computer. And uh, if you're not running your defragment, uh, defrag- and if you're not running your defragger, uh, appropriately and enough, then uh, everything gets a bit uh, screwed up up there.
1: Yeah. It, um, in fact, like, uh, you, you start losing recall. You can even create false memories and it lowers your just general ability to process information. Yeah. Uh, and then this is a quote directly from our House Stuff Works article on the effects of sleep deprivation. Uh, quote, when we learn and store information in our memory, that information is moved from the hippocampus, which we know is the the memory creating region of our brain to the prefrontal cortex specifically the neocortex region which is where we form and store long term memories so you can see kind of biologically how this would start to affect memory There's also a process going on where our body's glymphatic system cleans out our nervous system while we're sleeping. But if you don't sleep, all of this waste, I guess, or trash, Mm -hmm. (laughs) starts to build up. And by trash, what I mean is it's cerebrospinal fluid that's filled with proteins and toxins. It doesn't get flushed out of your system. So subsequently, you've got that stuff floating around in there, too. And all of this can lead to a speeding up of the progression of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Yeah, it's it's important to note here uh, and to, to stress here that when
0: when when sleep sleep deprivation is taking place, it's really messing with the chemistry of the brain, the functioning of the brain, and ultimately our perceptions of reality, both objective reality and subjective reality. Oh, we're yeah. Playing with our memories, our perceptions of the past, uh, hallucinations are yeah. absolutely a symptom. Yeah. So we are we're. we're it's, it's, it's ultimately a very nightmaric uh, scenario, Not uh, you know certainly not out of keeping with uh, the realm of creepypasta
1: and horror. Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's probably why this particular one is one of the most popular, is mm-hmm. that it's something, at their core, the sciency y creepypastas work best when it's something that almost everyone can identify with. Yeah. So lack of sleep is something that I think every person reading it can kind of imagine
0: yeah sleep is that realm of mystery and there ha- there is enough science out there even if one is not that familiar with it it's uh, you can you can certainly at least see it there on the internet you know that there yeah. have been re- there's been research into sleep you know there are sleep institutes that that work with people who have trouble um,
1: one of the the side effects of the, the sleep deprivation as well as something that we've covered here on the show before is sleep paralysis. So I know you've done a video on it and it, was there a previous podcast episode about sleep paralysis? Oh, it's, it's come
0: up. A, yeah. It's come up a lot. Like anytime I've covered something related to supernatural experience. Yeah. Um, sleep paralysis is always, is always up there as a possible explanation for encounters with aliens, encounters with ghosts. Yeah. Uh, Uh, And and I'll make sure we link to some resources on the landing page for this episode. But, you know, essentially it's a situation where when you go to sleep, your body's put on lockdown so that if you get in a kung fu fight with a bear in your dream, you won't throw any kung fu strikes at uh, the person sleeping next to you. But in sleep paralysis, you wake up. With your mind, your eyes open, but your body's still on lockdown. And you're in this, this also in this weird phase between dream and reality where uh, you're highly susceptible to hallucination.
1: Yeah. And in fact, uh, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm hoping to watch it this week. Um, have you heard about The Nightmare? It's this documentary that's all about sleep paralysis. This is the one from the guys who did the. Um, room 237? Yeah. The room 237. Yeah. It's the same creative team from Room 237. And I've heard that it is horrifying. It's a documentary. This is not a fictional film, but. Mm -hmm. As we know from you know researching sleep paralysis in the past, just the the examples of what people think is happening to them can be utterly terrifying. Yeah, because you you
0: often have to your brain is referring back to pre existing scripts for what you're encountering. You're hearing or seeing something out of the ordinary, and your brain has to make sense of it. And so it will turn to that uh, that episode of The X Files that you saw, or maybe it will think back to some creepypasta that you read on the internet, and you that to inform what you're
1: experiencing. So before I go into more symptoms about, uh, I, I guess, sleep depth, let's tie it back to that creepypasta story about the Russian sleep experiment. Okay. Then. So, yes, hallucinations are possible. Uh, so I guess you could say that there's a potential for going crazy or at least losing the ability to distinguish reality mm-hmm. from fantasy. Right. Um and then sleep paralysis plays into that as well, although they wouldn't be like tearing their or- organs out and stuff like that if they had sleep paralysis. Yeah, I don't think you'd go full hellraiser. Right. Yeah. So, okay. Uh the other really big thing that has a, a multiple effects on your body when you don't get sleep is that your genes aren't as efficient at handing out instructions to your body. So we call this genetic expression. And it causes all kinds of things. There's weight fluctuations. In fact, there was a 1984 study that showed that people who have less than seven to nine hours a night of sleep are more likely to be overweight. Uh, And and I won't go into all the numbers here, but basically the idea is like the less sleep you get, the more likely you you are to be overweight. Uh, When you're forced to stay awake, what happens is your body has trouble processing blood sugar and leptin, which is this protein hormone that regulates our appetite and our metabolism. Metabolism. Uh, and this can lead to type 2 diabetes, can lead to weight gain, and due to your decreased ability to process sugar, you're not as easily able to suppress your food cravings. So you know, if you're like me, you're going to the fridge and having a lot of ice cream late at night. Uh, it can also lead to illness, so sleep deprivation diminishes our immune system, which sometimes leads to serious or chronic illness. Blood pressure becomes a problem. If you have less than six hours of sleep a night, it puts you at high risk for high blood pressure. This starts overtaxing your heart. Also, your brain doesn't have as much time to regulate the stress hormones that are moving around in there, which also leads to higher blood pressure. And then finally, death is a symptom of of not sleeping. So, and I don't mean that like, if you don't sleep, you'll just drop dead. Uh, in fact, you die at a rate of two times faster than people who have normal sleeping patterns. If you're sleep deprived. And we can look
0: to uh, certain experiments with animals on this. Some animals certainly die without proper sleep. Uh, sleep deprivation in rodents and flies can cause death more quickly than food deprivation.
1: Uh, specifically two weeks without sleep can kill a lap rat. Whew, yeah. Okay. So, and that's about as long as the creepypasta experiment went on for. They were in there for about 15 days before they yeah. started uh ripping their skin off and... There was all kinds of super gory stuff in that story. That, also,
0: like, uh, inappropriate Amazon purchases. That was another. Oh, really? That, uh, in the Russian yeah. sleep experiment? Did, yeah. Oh,
1: they had internet in the
0: in nineteen forty nine, or whatever. Before they ripped the, the, the skin off, they started uh, making inappropriate
1: uh, online purchases. Uh, <laughs> just
0: because they were, in you know, an altered state.
1: Yeah. <laughs> they were buying like curtains made of human skin. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so there's another scientific aspect to this story as well, right? And that is the, quote, experimental gas-based stimulant. Okay. Which could, I guess, be almost anything. It could be anything. And so it's a little difficult for us to kind of narrow it down and say, well, the actual effects would be this. But I thought it was worth just kind of touching on Mm -hmm. what gas does to our bodies, right? So any type of gas... Chlorine, sulfur dioxide, hydrogen sulfide, nitrogen dioxide, ammonia, you name it. They're going to irritate your lungs. And some of them dissolve immediately. And, uh, you know, that's when you experience the irritation in your mouth, nose, and throat. I mean, like, if you think about it, like, when you go to the gas station and you're pumping your gas and you're inhaling stuff, that's kind of a version of this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, But the ones that don't easily dissolve, they don't produce early warning signs. And this can lead to things like fluid developing in your lungs and airway. They can also trigger allergic responses. These kind of responses can scar your lungs, maybe leading to chronic bronchitis. If the gas is radioactive, of course, it can lead to cancer. And if there's body poisoning, it's going to poison your body's cells, right? So if it's a poisonous gas, that's going to be lethal to you as well. Uh and it'll what it'll end up doing is displacing the oxygen that's in your blood, so you, you have less oxygen reaching your tissues. Carbon monoxide itself doesn't appear to have any kind of neurological effects, but levels below 13% of like if you're exposed to it, can decrease. Decrease your mental performance. And one other study that I found said that mustard gas affects mental health even for people who have been exposed to it like, uh, t- up to 25 years after their exposure. However, they usually qualify that as like PTSD because their exposure to the mustard gas was probably in a traumatic situation oh, yeah. like war. Um, so all that is to say is that yes, gas has physical effects on your body and there are some connections to mental problems, I guess, but, but not like within 15 days you'd go absolutely insane and start ripping off your skin. Maybe we just haven't found the right chemical yet.
0: Maybe so. We you know we haven't stumbled across the the right uh, uh, experiment, declassified experiment from uh, uh, World War II era Russian history. Now, this next uh, bit of uh, creepy pasta—I f- I found this one a lot of fun. This is, I think, I, I probably like this one the most of the ones that, w- that we looked at here mm-hmm. for this episode. Uh, in short, this one involves a supposed 1944 British secret intelligence service experiment aimed at modifying human blood. Uh, here's a quote. The chemical would modify the blood's chemical properties and structure so that if shot or cut, the blood would have the ability to freeze or solidify to where the person was shot. This would stop bleeding and can make a person far stronger than an average human being. Now, of course, as you... As you you know can expect, the experiment gets all dark and monstrous, uh, Mm -hmm. turning the test subjects into gray-skinned, blood-eyed, jelly-blooded, thick-skinned cannibals that run amok. And as such, uh, they end up putting them all down, shutting down the experiment, and deciding not to um, alter the blood of British soldiers.
1: So I think I might have read a different version than you because mine ended with them escaping.
0: Oh, yeah? And it was like
1: these crazy super soldiers are out there somewhere okay. and they're homicidal and they could get you.
0: Maybe there are a couple of versions of it. That's the, the beauty of Creepypasta is that <clears throat> yeah. uh, it, it can change. It's amorphous.
1: It's uh, it's a
0: collective uh, uh, creative uh, uh, scenario.
1: I kept thinking of them as being basically Wolverine from the X-Men. Like ah. like they... they All their wounds heal immediately, right? Because the the... I think one of the things is, like, immediately after this test, they, like, stab him in the leg and then shoot him in the arm to see what happens. And, like, the wounds seal up immediately, right? But it also makes them kind of feral and, and crazy and try to kill everybody. Yeah. I kind
0: of pictured him looking like... uh
1: creatures from a tool video running amok. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, one of the things I loved about this particular one is is how much it uh, adhered to the idea of it being an actual lab report. It said a copy of this lab report can be found somewhere deep within the old MI5 building in London. I like that the idea, like, everybody who lives in London knows about the old MI5 building. <laughs> yeah, you can just
0: pop by and just go down and check out the
1: files. Yeah. That's why they're there. Uh, and they actually name three chemicals as opposed to the Russian study. They name the chemicals that these guys are exposed to nomofungin mm-hmm. peprophoramididine okay. and communisin however in my version it was misspelled as communism so it was like they were exposed to these two chemicals and communism well maybe uh, commune isn't. Wait, what is it communisin
0: maybe communisin is uh is is a, a drug that causes communism? It it's could a communism be communism
1: inducing. It, you know what? That would possibly have as much validity as the rest of this story. <laughs> yeah, I feel
0: like like that was one of the drugs in RoboCop 2 or something. You're right, yeah. From.
1: Well, the idea that they said here was that those chemicals modified uh, human blood chemical properties, allowing them to solidify or freeze when the body is damaged. And they list a couple of other things that they do to solidify the blood, so I just wanted to mention these quickly because this is kind of their scientific basis for things. Uh, they increase the blood plasma in the subjects removed the thrombocytes from their blood, modified the medulla oblongata in their brain so that it would be familiar with the modified blood cells, and then they removed four to six percent of their blood volume because I guess the idea being that once they've done all this other stuff, their blood is thicker mm-hmm. and subsequently like takes up more space in their circulatory system. Uh, and they also said that they weren't allowed to give any food or painkillers to the subjects for at least 24 hours, which I, I like because that's basically what they do to you when you like go in for prep surgery anyways. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, the doctors, uh, after the experiment, determined that the pH value of the blood in these guys was lower than normal. Uh, and they think the chemical caused aggression by modifying the medulla oblongata. So this is where I want to start with the science on this one, because I... You know, within five minutes was able to look up that the medulla oblongata doesn't really have a whole lot to do with our emotion and aggression. In fact, this is the, you know, it's commonly known as the brain stem. It controls our reflexes and autonomic functions, uh, limb movements, visceral functions. It's basically, you know, things like blood pressure, Ah, breathing. There you go. Oh, that's all you need. Blood pressure. Ties into blood. Aggression. <laughs> but so, uh, yeah, uh, I- unless they're like, uh, you know, discovering new things about that part of the brain that we don't necessarily know. I don't know that th- that would have been the cause. If I was on the, um, the review committee for this uh, academic article, I would probably point that out. Now, it's also worth noting uh, here that this
0: is not to be confused with the Luftwaffe's uh, freezing experiments, the hypothermia that took place at uh, Dachau and Auschwitz uh, uh, during the Second World War. Uh, Those were actually dealing with what happens when the body, body freezes. This is ultimately about uh, coagulation right and, and mm-hmm. healing and what how, do, how our, our bodies heal and what we can do to speed that process up, especially as far as internal bleeding goes right and there has been some interesting research in this area, researchers trying to figure out ways to. To, to, to speed up uh, coagulation, speed up healing, and, and deal especially with military scenarios where you need to you need to take
1: care of either a need for blood or a need for for blood to do its job. Yeah, deep down. If you follow like science and tech feeds like mm-hmm. like like we do for work, you you end up seeing a lot of these. I'd say at least once a week, there's some kind of update on. Uh either something that's designed to seal a wound faster or, you know, affect the blood as such. But yeah, it's always
0: showing up in our video games, it. too. Yes. Like, yeah. I, I started playing uh, the latest Metal Gear thing. Oh, yeah, Phantom Pain,
1: is that what it's called?
0: Yeah, or it's, like, Ground Zero. I think it's the one. It's like oh, the Ground Zero is, like, yeah. the prequel, right? It's, like, right? free this month, so yeah. I checked it out. And, okay. And you get wounded to a certain amount, and you, like, spray your wound with a little air. Uh-huh, yeah. But um the the first uh, bit to, to discuss here about Blood science and kind of cool blood science is uh, there's a, a Cleveland, Ohio biotech firm called uh, Arteriosite, and they made headlines in 2010 with the development of an artificial genetically engineered blood for use on the battlefield. So we're talking typo negative, of course here, universal blood donor because you're going to make. Artificial blood, it right? Right. Universal. Everybody should be able to use it. Yeah, and this would allow for mobile blood banks in war zones. You wouldn't have to worry about shortages back home, and then lengthy shipments that decrease the shelf life for the blood samples. You mm-hmm. need you need blood on the on the field, say in Afghanistan. Then you have
1: a machine that'll help create it. Right now, presumably, yeah. That's my question. I guess is that like, are they creating this on site in the? Uh, in a battlefield scenario or is it like they created an America and then they ship just all of this genetically engineered blood to wherever the war zone is
0: I think the latter is probably the more immediate uh goal okay but, I, but my understanding uh, based on the reading is that ultimately that's where they want to get is to where you can have at least wow. a, a local blood hub yeah you know whereas if it's it's like a 3D printer of blood. Yeah, like at the very least, you're like shipping it in from the the, the closest military base as opposed mm-hmm. to all the way around the world. Okay. Um, they received uh, $1.95 million uh, for the project uh, uh, for, through DARPA. Mm. And uh, last that it was really reported on, uh, they had shipped off samples to DARPA and were hoping to uh, up production to bring costs down from. $5,000 uh, per unit of blood to around 1000 per unit. And just to give everyone a reminder, one unit equals about a pint, and the average human contains eight to
1: ten pints. Wow. Yeah. So in order to make enough for a human, it's, it's like... At their low end, going to be eight to $10,000 worth of blood. Yeah, and the average soldier needs six units
0: during trauma treatment. You know, because you're talking about situations where a lot of blood is lost. Yeah,
1: I wonder how that compares to just the, like, good old, you know, uh, Red Cross, you know, going and giving your blood volunteer type thing. Well, I mean, of course, then again, you're dealing with all different blood types. Then.
0: Yeah, that's true. And and then a, and then a rigorous screening process mm-hmm. to figure out which samples are applicable. And shipping. Yeah, and shipping, which, again, hurts the shelf life. Yeah. So the process here is pretty interesting. Scientists harvest hemiotopedic cells from the umbilical cords, and via a process called FARMING, that's P-H-A-R-M-I-N-G, uh, they turn one umbilical cord into 20 units of... Uh, of packaged blood. Wow. This takes place over the course of three days according to initial reports uh, through uh, Wired magazine.
1: Where are they getting all the umbilical cords from?
0: Babies, man. (laughs) If you can, if if you find babies where the parents are not going to, um, you know, dry it and eat it or eat it themselves, uh, then yeah, the umbilical cord is a, has a, has a lot of valuable uh, material in it
1: so this is a thing that as a uh, someone who doesn't have kids that i'm woefully unaware of that's like when you go in and and have the procedure and everything for giving birth is there just like a you know in the paperwork there's a box that you check that's something like i want the umbilical cord
0: i assume i mean uh we did not go through that process with my son so oh, i'm yeah. not uh i'm not exactly sure how it how it rolls out in, yeah. in real time but I'm guessing there's a box that you, pan, you in a panic to, you know, pre-birth
1: right. mode, you check or you don't, check. or otherwise there's just like a biohazard bag filled with umbilical cords that they then ship off to these I guess guys, so, yeah. Huh.
0: So ultimately, though, we're talking about the rapid expansion of umbilical cord blood, uh, sped up even more through the use of what's called Nanex technology. This is a nanofiber-based structure that mimics bone marrow, and bone marrow is where blood cells generally multiply and, mm. at, a, at a greater rate. Huh. So, yeah. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's crazy science fiction and and I think it would lend itself well to a little tweaking. I mean, you're talking about... Ultimately, the discarded pieces of a baby that are used to
1: create uh, blood for soldiers in the field, yeah. and potentially vampires, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, well, that's where this would naturally head. It's a daybreaker situation. You yeah. make these soldiers, they become vampires, and then they vampirize the rest of the population. So it's mm-hmm. a planet of vampires.
0: I wonder if vampires prefer O negative as a universal donor, or does that mean it's, it's too- probably too common? Right.
1: Yeah. It's like the Coca Cola of, of <laughs> blood.
0: All right, so that's artificial blood. Uh, But then there's the use of uh, healing factor nanoparticles in the blood. All right, so this is straight-up Wolverine. Healing factor is right out of the X-Men comics. Exactly. This is where we're getting into at least the near-future version of that. Okay. Um, So there are different um, substances that can be used as a coagulant to help with excessive bleeding. Of course, the best uh, way to deal with excessive bleeding on the surface is to apply pressure when it's a wound that can be treated in that manner sure. so to you know, die or a, a wound. Um, but a 2009 study published in the journal Science Translational Medicine introduced the use of injectable synthetic nanoparticles, or nanoplatelets, that curb bleeding. So hmm. normally, blood platelets at a wound site bind together in order to plug that wound, right? Yeah. These na- these nano platelets, what they do is they mimic platelet structure, so they augment the process, bonding with natural blood platelets and acting as a nanostructure. So it's like throwing in a bunch of um, a bunch of extras to. Yeah. to- Say you're to television taping and the crowd's looking kind of thin. Get some extras in there, make it look nice and thick for the cameras. Right, so yeah, that's what I'm
1: kind of thinking, that it's like a thickening process, like almost like a blood plasma, as I understand it. Okay. And what's more though, this, uh, the,
0: the best part about this is again, not the use of this at, at the uh, skin level, mm-hmm. but the ability to, uh, to get down and stop deep and internal bleeding more easily. Uh, again, you can't just uh, apply pressure if you're dealing with bleeding inside the body as easily.
1: Yeah, there's gotta be so many, uh, potential hazards with this though too, I would imagine, given the like, I mean like our blood is like it's got that goldilocks factor to it right it has to be like just right mm-hmm. it can't be too thick and it can't be too thin otherwise there's all there's a whole host of problems I'll get into later that you know can affect your body oh yeah like i'm instantly thinking to uh,
0: back to uh, last season of the nick
1: uh, oh, man. I've only seen a couple episodes. Yeah, yeah. there's
0: some pretty horrific. Um, it's like uh, you know, turn of the century hospital, mm-hmm. a brilliant surgeon, and at one point he gets obsessed with blood transfusions and trying to figure out like what's the key and right. It's really rough stuff. But um, but in this case, with these uh, particularly particular nano platelets, uh, they found that the stuff um, has halved bleeding time in wounded rats. Wow. And just a couple of years later, in 2011, the uh, Massachusetts General Hospital Center for Engineering and Medicine developed a way to deliver nanospheres containing keratinocyte growth factor, or KGF, suspended in a fibrin gel. Uh, So again, the advantage here would be to deal with the targeted treatment of deep wounds as opposed to trying to treat the whole
1: body and just get at it. Um, so this is, right, so the difference between this and Wolverine is that, like, you don't just heal immediately from any wound. You have a wound, and then they apply right, these yeah. nanospheres to you. And the same with
0: the nanoplatelets, too. It would, right. Yeah, it wouldn't be a matter of, as we see in the the creepypasta, it wouldn't yeah. be like, we've changed the blood of the soldier. Exactly. No, it's, this is a way to treat the blood of a soldier at a wound site and try to uh, speed up the healing. <laughs>
1: Well, okay, so, you may recall that at the top of, when we were talking about this experiment that I mentioned, they had three particular chemicals that they mentioned. I assumed these were fictional, but I decided to look them up. Nomofungin, Peproformididine, and Comminsin. Turns out, at least as far as I can tell, that they are real things. Uh, however... There were a few links that definitely looked like they were fake, that uh, were potential, uh, I'm going to guess, like, fake sources to back up the creepypasta story. Mm -hmm. But then uh, there were a lot of legitimate academic chemistry articles about these that were behind firewalls I couldn't access. But I did get access to one that was called Synthetic Studies Toward Commune Sins, and it was published in the Israel uh, Israel Journal of Chemistry in 2011. And this, I could barely understand it because it was written in such deep chemistry language. However, this is what I got out of it. Uh, these are basically the same chemicals. They're like synthesized chemicals that are isolated from a marine fungal strain of a penicilla, uh, penicillum species. And that there's a possible use for these as an insecticide. They're also cytotoxic against certain tumor cells. Hmm. So I think that they're being investigated for those possible applications. Okay. Uh, and they were first isolated in 1993. So, yeah, they really exist. It sounds like it doesn't sound like their usage though is to you know plug up blood, yeah, or make blood freeze or anything like that. But
0: I mean, I guess we're looking at the standard trick here, right? You uh, you draw a little science terminology out, you throw it in there in a way where you're not too specific, and it's harder for the the average reader to look at it and call BS. Uh, and so it gives it that sciencey vibe, and, and yeah, loves I mean, you to invest a little more in the creepy
1: bust. They did a great job. Uh, whoever wrote this did a great job with the, that application of, of these chemicals, because not only were they like difficult to, to find information on, but also they're so relatively new in, the, in in the research that's being done on them that there isn't a whole lot out there. I guess it could be plausible that you know somebody comes up with this magical synthetic chemical that can freeze your blood. Um, And real quick, let's just talk about what happens when your blood is thickened or frozen in certain situations. Uh, First of all, it's very rare that you could freeze a human being's blood while it was still inside their body. The hypothalamus constantly tries to keep the core of our bodies warm, so it constricts our blood uh, supply to the core of our bodies, essentially... uh, removing it from the extremities if necessary. So that's why you get those instances of like frostbite where people's fingers or toes fall off and stuff like that. Um, But even in cryonics, when they're going to freeze somebody's body, your blood isn't frozen. Uh, From what I understand reading about it, your body is usually injected with something called heparin, which is an anticoagulant. And the reason why is to prevent blood clotting while you're under, I don't know what's the proper term, uh, under freeze <laughs> <laughs> on the slab, <laughs> in the know. freezer. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then lastly, there is a, uh, there, there are a couple different, uh, uh, diseases that lead to blood thickening. One in particular is called Hughes Syndrome, and that's an abnormal immune system response that causes your blood to thicken. Basically, the idea here is it sounds similar to uh, the nanotech we were talking about earlier. It causes your blood platelets to clump together. But this can be very dangerous, like I was saying earlier, uh, because it can lead to thrombosis, which can subsequently lead to something like a heart attack or a stroke or, I suppose, even an aneurysm. But no cannibalism. Uh, yeah. Nope. They don't have that yet. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, now we're going to turn
0: to the third section here. And in this one, we're really drawing on two different uh, creepy pastas, which we'll, we'll, we'll refer to here in short. One is the Harbinger experiment, and the other one is Gateway of the Mind. And they both resolve, beep, and they both revolve around the same thing, really. Yeah. So... The Harbinger Experiment. Uh, this creepypasta is this one's a bit long, and it, it kind of reads like uh, you know average weird fiction story. Really, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the basics here is it's some matter prolonged isolation experiment with uh, an occult twist. Uh, some entity that's summoned into the bodies of the patients by this uh, mysterious Doctor Zimmerman. Zimmerman wants to prove the existence of the spirit realm by trapping a spirit in a human body, a human body that he's in- injected with a
1: compound that somehow prevents the spirit from leaving again while the host is still alive right right and yeah I, if I remember this one correctly like Zimmerman is like fantastically rich mm-hmm. and like uh, does all of this at like an off-site hidden bunker underground where he's like hired his own private army and team of researchers yeah. right yeah. so you can imagine how it ends up right uh, right madness yeah, just like death. It, yeah
0: yeah <laughs> And now the the other one is Gateway of the Mind. Uh, do, you, do you want to roll the... Roll yeah, this, one
1: this one's thing. an interesting one. So the idea with this is that in 1983, there's this team of scientists. The story refers to them as deeply pious scientists. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, And that the idea is that they want to prove the existence of God. So their theory is that... Uh, without sensory input that human beings would be able to perceive the presence of God. So, and that they interfere with some kind of holy signal, right? So what they do is they take this elderly volunteer and they surgically cut out nerves so he can't see, hear, taste, smell, or feel. Uh, and he can, he, he can't communicate, but he can like, He can clearly talk. He sort of, like, yells. Yeah, I don't think he knows what's going on around him, but he, like, yells out things about what he's experiencing. But he's basically alone with his thoughts. And, yeah, what happens is he goes totally crazy. He says that he's talking to ghosts. He's able to, like... Use information from the ghosts to, like, uh, prove that there's something supernatural going on to the researchers, right? By, like, revealing secrets about them that nobody else would know. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end, he tells them that he's he's had a conversation with God and and God has abandoned us.
0: Oh, okay. Well... I feel like it kind of loses a little steam there at the end with like like maybe the message that he revealed shouldn't be uh, so explicit but I'm 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 nitpicking here.
1: Yeah, they sort of like uh, the 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 author or authors of this creepy pasta it seems like god is sort of Cagey about getting in touch with this guy who doesn't have his five senses. Like the ghosts show up pretty quickly. Yeah. But God like waits until like the absolute last minute and all he does is just say like, hey, uh, I've abandoned you guys. <laughs> I'm on vacation. I'm out. For the week. Yeah. So
0: both of these on one level, they deal with this idea of like let's scientifically prove the afterlife, and yeah. and there have been a, a number of experiments and sort of pseudo experiments that have gone into that. We have a whole episode of stuff to blow your mind that deals with soul weighing experiments that tried to show that the soul has weight, and therefore there is a soul, there is some part of us that's immortal and survives yeah.
1: death. Um, there, there's real science behind that too, isn't there? Like a particular like. I remember like that there's like a very specific weight that they said that, oh like, yeah, yeah. that the whole... disappears when you die or something like that, right yeah, I think twenty one grams is the the number
0: those as we discussed in the, the, that episode uh which I'll link to on the landing page for this episode uh you know there's some science applied, it's very yeah. rough and uneven there are a lot of problems there's some more oh, recent okay. uh, theories that are interesting, but both of these experiments ultimately deal with isolation, yeah. right? What happens when someone is isolated from uh, from sensory input, particularly uh, in the case of the experience we're going to discuss here, you put them in a room, you put them in solitary confinement. Right, yeah. What happens when you deprive us of our environment that we've evolved to thrive within? What happens to the mind?
1: Yeah, and so I think it's worth mentioning here, uh, before we get into the science of it, of what happens when you're uh, deprived of your senses, and for that matter, social interaction, uh, that both Robert and I have gone into sensory deprivation tanks before, so we have personal experience with mm-hmm. this. Uh, in my case, uh, I didn't hallucinate, uh, which seems to be a common symptom that people have, uh, but it was enjoyable. It was yeah. peaceful. Uh, you basically lay inside a big tank that's dark, laying on top of salt water. Uh, for In my case, it was about an hour long. Yeah, mine too. Uh, and... Um, you know, the because of the water your ears are plugged up. Oh no, you I I wore earplugs, but the the water also keeps you from really being able to hear anything. Uh you can't see anything. You don't really feel anything other than the water uh and the taste of yeah. salty air.
0: <laughs> yeah, when I went into it I wasn't really thinking about how salty it was gonna be. Yeah. And how the there's a good point good portion of the float experience that is spent uh, reacting to the feel of the salt water, mm-hmm. the smell of the salt water, and, uh, and just sort of getting past that.
1: Yeah, I guess I should clarify that there's so much salt water that you float to the top. Yeah. Like, so it's, y- you're not just salty. laying in
0: it. Yeah. Like, you instantly are acquainted with any random nicks or scratches or itches <laughs> on your body because now yeah. they have tons of salt pressing up against them. Yep. So we've had a number of, uh, of studies that have looked at, at what happens when you, um Put somebody in solitary confinement when you isolate someone from stimuli. Uh, There's a 2013 piece from Wired Magazine by Brandon Keim uh, titled The Horrible Psychology of Solitary Confinement. And it takes a nice look at a horrifying topic, pointing out that solitary confinement has been shown to make prisoners extremely anxious, to make them Angry, make them hallucinate, experience mood swings and flatness, the loss of impulse control, and this is all on top of aggravating any pre existing mental illnesses. Mm. Um, so they, we, we've looked at solitary confinement many times. From a scientific standpoint, in in the past, and it generally comes in waves, responding to trends and concerns related to modern incarceration. So, the mid eighteen hundreds there was concern and interest in this. In the nineteen fifties, it popped up again, due in part uh, as a reaction to the Korean War. Mm-hmm. Um, prisoners of war and how they were uh, uh, allegedly treated. And then it, uh, it rose up again in the 1980s uh, with,
1: you know, some research spread out in between. But those are sort of the big periods. So uh, I have to say, like, every time, like, I read a fictional account or watch a TV show or a movie where it's a prison setting and somebody does something wrong and gets sent to solitary, my first thought is always like, that sounds great. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, you get to be away from all the craziness and you sit all by yourself in a room and hang out and sleep and you're alone with your thoughts. However, I don't think it's as peaceful as I'm imagining it to be. It's based on these experiments, right? And, yeah. And also on other things we know about Oh, yeah, just based on
0: accounts where people just talk about it as just this... Brutalization of the mind because essentially, in absence of stimuli, we focus on what little stimuli there is. Mm -hmm. Our brains are made for a a world of you know fixed and moving objects, of of varied environmental uh, actions going on. Not a limited cell, so you get in there, your brain ends up chewing on itself. Uh, Maybe it's some detail in the cell. Maybe it's. um, it's something in your memory, yeah. but your brain finds something to focus
1: on and sort of recreate the world you've been robbed of out of its limited pieces. And this is the Hannibal Lecter style, like, yeah. uh, like forming, what does he call it, his memory palace? Yeah, I think he, doesn't he paint the walls with uh, to, to resemble Florence or something it like that? It depends on the iteration of yeah. Hannibal, but yeah. Uh, in the TV show, which just ended... Uh I believe once they actually incarcerate him, like he just constructs it all inside his oh, head. Okay. Like he can like because he's such a crazed genius, he can like go inside his memory palace and it's like he's in a, a- Church in Florence, or something like that.
0: Yeah, so like basically, that's what your brain wants to do. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes you don't have you, know, you don't have that rich tapestry to 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 draw on. What you have are maybe some traumatic memories yeah. from your incarceration. Maybe it's you know some weird markings on the wall or something that's troubling you in the back of your mind, mm-hmm. and that's what
1: gets you blown fixate. up. That's what is blown out into your new virtual world. Yeah. Well, so IO nine actually has a really nice summary piece, less about. Um, Um, the isolation part but more about the sensory deprivation and guess who came up at the beginning of their article it was the good old john c Lilly uh character that often seems to come up on stuff to blow your mind in fact we've talked recently Mm -hmm. about maybe doing an episode just about him and you you were the one who told me i think that uh he was the inspiration for altered states right yes which is kind of my go-to uh, pop culture movie reference for uh, sensory deprivation tanks. He claimed that uh, when he was in a sensory deprivation tank, it allowed him to make contact with creatures from another dimension, uh, and they're from a civilization that was far more advanced than our own. Uh, so that is, I guess, kind of close to the Harbinger story, uh, although I don't know necessarily uh, that John C Lilly is uh, a reliable source um. <laughs> he is uh, he's a kind of a problematic source yeah. but uh, a fascinating one um but Hallucinations are absolutely real. Um, people, ha- we definitely know people have hallucinations when they are deprived of their senses. Uh, renowned physicist Richard Feynman has described having them when he was in a sensory deprivation chamber. We have lots of examples of studies that have been done. Uh, uh, both meditation and sem- sensory deprivation are linked to decreased alpha waves and increased. Theta waves within our brains. These are the same things that we we find when we're in a sleeping state, and in fact, we're going to find uh, as we kind of go through the sensory deprivation stuff that there's a lot of connections to what we were talking about earlier with the Russian sleep experiment story of uh, sleep. So there's a connection between the isolation and the sleep stuff, uh, at least in how our brains work. Uh, there's an investigation, uh, in 2009 that showed that some people within 15 minutes of sensory deprivation will have hallucinations triggered. Uh, and however, I will qualify it by saying that this particular study They the 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 people that they got for this study purposely were scored low on what is called a revised hallucination scale. I'd love to know that test how they how they how they determined that. Basically, what this meant was like these people I think were in like the lower twenty percentile of Uh people who uh, are are likely to have hallucinations.
0: Now it's also worth noting that. that this kind of isolation warps our perception of time. Mm. And you know, part of that, you get into the whole just sort of relative nature of time, right? Yeah. An hour spent in a boring waiting room is is far different than an hour spent at the, the carnival, right? Yep. Uh, in 1993, a, a sociologist and caving enthusiast, Maresio Montalbini, spent 366 days in an Italian cave to replicate a long solitary space flight. Oof. You know, what would be the experience of a uh, staying in a little tube on your yeah. way to Mars, right? Uh, when he emerged, he was convinced only 219 days had passed, uh, uh, instead of three hundred and sixty-six, so his sleep wave cycles had nearly doubled in this uh, in this scenario. Yeah. So, so
1: there's another connection. Yeah. Your senses are inherently con- uh, connected, I guess, to your circadian rhythm. That gets back to what I was talking about earlier with light and jet lag. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another uh, crazy s- uh, story that we have. It's an instance of this. In 1961, it's a French geologist named Michel Sifra who studied an underground glacier beneath the French Alps, and he. He ended up staying for two months instead of his uh, anticipated two weeks. And what happened was he basically decided to stop doing his study and live like an animal. That's quote. Huh. I think that's his quote, live like an animal. Uh, and when he was tested back on the surface, when the, the, his team finally got him out, they found that it took him five minutes to count to 120 seconds. Huh. So it definitely interferes with our perceptions of time. Yeah, and therefore also ends up uh,
0: warping our sleep. Right. And, uh, and the, the way that plays into uh, how we use our time, uh, for reasons that we're still not sure about, it, it, um, it, it really blows out your sleep cycle. So most underground dwellers shift to a 48-hour cycle, hmm. 36 hours of activity, followed by 12 hours of sleep.
1: Oof. I don't know. if Well, I, I suppose if I was in the right environment, I would shift over to that. But I don't know that I could... Be awake for thirty-six hours straight. Um, one of the key series of experiments
0: here, and again, I mentioned the you know the the, the different uh, boom periods for uh, for isolation experimentation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this was McGill University Medical Center in Montreal, where uh, psychologist Donald Hebb. Uh, led several key isolation experiments in the late 50s. Again, this is after the Korean War, responding to, to some POW treatment. Uh, volunteer students were put in soundproof cubicles. They even gave them uh, uh, translucent visors, uh, cotton gloves, cardboard cuffs to you know keep them from feeling yeah. in a way that doesn't involve slicing nerves. They gave them U-shaped pillows, turn on some white noise, and they found that the test subjects became restless in mere hours, and in some cases became anxious and emotional. Uh, their abilities in uh, in arithmetic and word association tests, quickly uh, took a dive. And then uh, the hallucinations, points of light, lines or shapes, eventually bizarre scenes such as, and these are actual scenes. These hallucinations
1: are crazy. These are like the kind of urban legend hallucinations you hear, like, well, such and such kid took LSD and then he saw this for the rest of his life or whatever, (laughs) right? Like, these are nuts yeah and speaking of nuts yeah the first one is <laughs>
0: squirrels marching with sacks over their shoulders yeah another one processions of eyeglasses filing down a street one one uh, person only saw dogs another one only saw babies um, and they had no control over the visuals they're just rolling yeah. out yeah so this this reminds me of two things I mean first of all what we said earlier about the brain focusing on a one little thing. Yeah. It just, it has to fill up your world and it ends up filling your world up with a babies. Baby. <laughs>
1: just, uh, yeah. And I don't, th- I think it was like lots of babies. It wasn't just like a baby or two. It was like, I think this person was just hallucinating hordes of babies, Yeah, which sounds like the scariest horror movie never made. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and again, it's like they had no control over it. So this is the kind of, I, I, perhaps some people who engage in meditation or yoga can relate to this, but, uh, when I am finishing yoga, sometimes when I'm in Shavasana, I get to experience some level of hallucination that I don't have control over. It's uh-huh. often just lights and stuff, you know. But, sure, yeah. but you're just sort of watching
1: it transpire. You're not directly influencing what you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've had similar situations before. Although nothing audible, which is apparently what happened in this McGill study, right? Yeah, there were some audible hallucinations. They're hearing music. They're hearing
0: sounds. Tactile hallucinations where they, they, they touch the doorknob and they think they feel a shock. Or another person said that they felt pellets hitting their skin.
1: Hmm. Yeah, so basically the gist of this is that they weren't even able to finish this study. They wanted it to be several weeks long. But everyone became so distressed and had so much trouble that they just ended the study. Mm -hmm. Uh, They only lasted a few days in isolation. None of them lasted more than a week. And they reported, you know, they were unable to think clearly the whole time. They were actually more susceptible to suggestion after they got out. So, for instance, one of the things that they did was suggest to them... Uh, while they were sorry, while they th- their their senses were deprived, they suggested to them that ghosts were real. And then when they got out of the, the situation, they asked them questions about the paranormal. And these people were now more likely to think that ghosts were real, uh, right. which lent credence to this idea that, you know, there was this paranoid idea that the Soviets were using sensory deprivation in some kind of way to brainwash people, right? Like a Manchurian candidate kind of situation. And so that subsequently led to even more research in this area. uh, Also done at at McGill, uh, this guy, D. Ewan Cameron, he was the head of McGill's psychiatry department in the 50s, and he was inspired by Hebb's work. So he began employing sensory deprivation as part of a technique called psychic driving. This is something we should probably do an episode on. Uh, and his unsuccessful attempt to reprogram the minds of mentally ill patients. So basically, he justified this saying, you know, this, th- this was, uh, something that was sort of necessary so that we could better understand the mind in lieu of these Soviet brainwashed characters. Um ultimately the the patients some of them ended up suing him uh, afterwards and uh in 1956 he wrote in the American Journal of Psychiatry that he would hypnotize schizophrenic patients under the stimulant drugs and after prolonged psychological isolation so like we were saying earlier like let's say you're a prisoner and you're put in solitary confinement and you're already mentally ill. Like that's not going to help the situation. This guy was like doing that to people on purpose and then throwing drugs into the mix. Mm. Uh, and then finally, uh, you know, ultimately, like this is a real ethics violation. I think this is one of those things that probably uh, led to the strict adherence to institutional review boards that we have nowadays in most studies. These people were sick. They had mental illness and they wanted to get help. But instead, they were just subjected to this kind of brutal research uh, that seemed to be largely stimulated by the Cold War.
0: Just hit one more study uh, on all this. In 2008, psychologist Ian Robbins created recreated Hebb's experiments uh, in uh, in collaboration with the BBC. And in this, they isolated six volunteers for 48 hours in soundproof rooms. All this taking place in a a former uh, nuclear bunker. Uh, That sounds fairly close to uh, the harbinger. It does, and they've had similar results. Anxiety, extreme emotions, paranoia, significant deterioration in their mental functioning, and of course crazy
1: hallucinations. Yeah, so the, I wanted to list these hallucinations because they're just as bonkers as <laughs> the first batch. One person hallucinated a heap of 5,000 empty oyster shells, okay. and then there were other things like a snake, zebras, tiny cars, the room taking off, I think like flying, a bunch of mosquitoes, and then this one that there were fighter planes flying and buzzing around within the room. So yeah, so de- dep- deprivation can definitely, uh, twist your mind.
0: Yeah, you remove human from its natural sleep cycles, you remove a human from its natural environment, and you change the expression of the mind, you change our experience of reality. And that is ultimately a very terrifying concept uh, to, to
1: wrap our heads around, and it lends yeah. itself so well to uh, to, to horror. Oh, yeah, pasta. absolutely, yeah. Um, Yeah, I guess, like, ultimately what I come back to with the harbinger and the gateway of the mind is the idea of being able to just sever our connections to our senses from our uh, consciousness. Mm -hmm. That is very scary. Yeah. Um, Yeah. To the point that I don't know that I can imagine it. Yeah, I mean, it, it significantly changes
0: what it is to be human and Mm, that's and you know ultimately stories like this that's what it's about it's about exploring the human condition Mm -hmm. uh, though taking a more frightening approach to that exploration
1: yeah in a lot of ways it's connected to the episodes that we did on feral children and their social isolation and sort of what resulted from that yeah exactly
0: alright so there you have it creepypasta creepypasta experiment
1: so that's just three of these creepypasta stories I mean my impression is that there are thousands of oh, these yeah. things out there, and, and even just within the like sort of sub-genre of sciencey creepy pastas, there's probably hundreds, right?
0: Yeah, if everyone liked uh, this uh, particular episode and you want more, we could probably do uh, another couple of creepypasta episodes <laughs> uh, to illuminate the science behind the scares.
1: Yeah, in fact, so uh, if there is a creepypasta story out there that you think is particularly good for us to cover, we'd like to hear about it. Uh, let us know over our social media channels. Again, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Uh, and we're Blow the Mind on all of those channels. And then, of course, you can always write and let us know about your creepypastas or uh, potential uh, science that's connected to creepypastas that you've read at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. you <laughs>